Stanford University. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Claude Steele. I'm the new uh, Dean of SUSE, Stanford University School of Education. I have to get that so it rolls off the tongue. But <laughs> um, and it's a great pleasure to uh, welcome you tonight to uh, a, a reunion night and a night of faculty presentations and, and just an opportunity to get together. Um, I am a new dean here, but I have been, at, I'm, a, I'm an old Stanford pro. I was in the psychology department here at Stanford for um, 18 years uh, before taking a brief sojourn to New York City two years ago, and already I'm back. So <laughs> um, it, the opportunity to lead this school at, at this time, uh, we found uh, irresistible and uh, an exciting chance. Uh, I think for a couple reasons that are worth uh, pointing out in a, on, on this occasion. Um, first, I think that uh, the Stanford School of Education, I believe it's the best in the United States. <laughs> uh, it, it is really a, an, yeah, there we go. Uh, the quality of the research, the quality of the teacher training that we offer, just the quality of our programs in general, I think are almost uh, um, unmatched. They're very good schools, of course, but I, I think this one is, is special for uh, a variety of reasons. And, uh, and I also inherit as dean a school that has been tremendously well run, I think. Uh, I, I owe a great debt to Deborah Stipek, the dean who preceded me, because she left things in very good working order. So uh, for all those reasons, that joining this school is a, is a real uh, pleasure. Also, uh, this is a time when education is very important to Stanford University. If you just think about all the universities in the United States, especially ones that are our uh, peers of Stanford, uh, how many have had the kind of emphasis on education that Stanford is in the midst of, uh, uh, of executing at this uh, point in time? I think even the themes of this alumni weekend reflect uh, the, the kind of commitment that Stanford has to, to education, the interest that it has. So it's a, it's a, it's a great time to, for education at uh, uh, this university, and I think also it's a great time for education in the broader society. Uh, I have been saying that uh, in, in the broader society right now, these are the worst of times and the best of times for, for education. Uh, that you, and I think you'll know what I, I mean. These are trying times. Probably uh, there's been few times in, in recent history at any rate where education has had as much controversy surrounding it, as much polarization, uh, where uh, teachers in the teaching profession have had to struggle as hard for respect as they do in these days. Uh, nearly every uh, newspaper article uh, makes references to the, the uh, profession of teaching, the schools of education, and, and the like. So, so I, I think that is true. But I think uh, uh, sort of between the lines of this discourse, in, the, in uh, this public discourse, between the lines, there is a real, uh, there's evidence of a deepening commitment to education and maybe a, a, a deepening recognition that the quality of education we offer our citizens is absolutely instrumental to the quality of life in the larger society, that, the things, that these things are not independent. And that realization may be, uh, at least in my time, a relatively new realization, at least is to have it as broadly disseminated as, uh, as, as it is. So, uh, I, I think that, that puts us in some sense in the best of times, that people recognize the importance of education, they recognize the importance of, of educating our broad 
population. So um, I think in all of this, there is you know, a real important role for uh, schools uh, of education, uh, both in terms of doing the research uh, that informs policy and decision making, uh, that uh, helps us crystallize what it is to be a good teacher, what it is to be an effective teacher, that helps us uh, figure out how to implement that knowledge. These are, are issues and topics that uh, schools of education, especially the good ones, the ones that, like this one, that are dedicated to research and to science, uh, that, that we're good at. And so I think in this uh, era we have a, a, a real contribution. I think this is uh, one, way of, one way of saying this is that I think it's our moment these days to uh, uh, make this kind of contribution. Uh, also, uh, I think we provide forum that are important, that we can begin to raise the discussion and the discourse about education above the level of simple uh, silver bullet solutions and, and discussions, and uh, we, can, we can sort of calm down the rhetoric uh, as we uh, make the case for the importance of evidence and serious research as the underlying foundation of wise educational policy. This is, I think, something that schools of education have a chance to do and even a responsibility to, to do. Uh, so I, I really invite all of you to uh, join us in this uh, uh, effort. We're all members of the Stanford School of Education community, and I invite you to come to our events and to write us emails and to uh, participate in, in this uh, uh, effort as we uh, move forward. So I know I'm pe preaching to the choir. You're the ones that are here tonight. So, <laughs> so uh, uh, thanks for coming. I think it's, it's very appreciated. Uh, now it is uh, my pleasure uh, and privilege to introduce four faculty speakers who uh, have come here tonight to share their work with you. Uh, I, I am going to be a member of the roundtable tomorrow morning, and so I have to leave here to go to a rehearsal for that. Uh, but, so I will introduce them all at once, <laughs> is what that's leading up to. Um, our first speaker tonight is going to be uh, Denise Pope Clark, uh, who has been with the School of Education since 1999. She is a senior lecturer and co-founder of Challenge uh, Success. Challenge Success is a research and intervention project which aims to reduce unhealthy pressures our children face both in and out of school. Uh, Challenge Success has created and introduced to our society a broader vision of how our children can achieve success without experiencing overwhelming pressures. Uh, she is a much sought after lecturer throughout the, the nation and uh, we'll have a chance to hear her uh, first. Uh, our second speaker tonight is Professor Eric Bettinger. Uh, Eric has been here since 2008, just a relatively brief period of time. Uh, he's an economist with, uh, whose research has for a, a good while focused on uh, education. And uh, one of the things uh, that I know he will talk about tonight is his work on the effects of uh, simplifying financial aid applications as a means of broadening the uh, base of people who apply to college, uh, the, in particular uh, encouraging people from lower income backgrounds to, uh, to apply to college. Uh, I don't know for sure if this is exactly what he's going to talk about, but it's a, it's a fascinating topic if you can ever get him to talk about it. <laughs> um, our third speaker tonight is uh, Bridget Barron, who has been here since 1996. 
Um, in addition to her professorial duties, Dr. Barron is also the co-director of the Bermuda Computing Curriculum Project, which is a collaborative effort with the Computer Science Department and the School of Education. We all envy the location of that project in, <laughs> in Bermuda. Uh, it is a collaboration that has created in, uh, that was created in order to develop a computing curriculum for Bermuda Public Schools that uses programming as a central theme and focuses on computing skills and concepts that remain important despite changes in specific technology, and the latest generation of computing technology and tools. Dr. Barron is a developmental psychologist who studies the processes of collaborative learning uh, in and out of school settings. Uh, finally, our fourth speaker is Michael Kirst, who I am sure many of you uh, know and, and may remember from your time uh, here in, in, in the school. Uh, he has been at Stanford, I see here, since 1969. <laughs> that was a good year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, he, and he is still one of our most uh, active faculty members in the School of Education, and he is currently the president of the California State Board of Education for the second time. His uh, first term was 1977 to 1981, so he's back at the helm there. Uh, to our great benefit, I might uh, point out. Uh, Dr. Kirst is a faculty affiliate also of the Department of Political Science and has a courtesy appointment in the uh, Graduate School of Business. So uh, again, I thank you for coming back to the School of Education for this evening of learning and networking and maybe even some entertainment. So with no further ado, I guess I'll turn to you, Denise. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. I want just to see a show of hands of how many of you are parents in the audience or grandparents, okay? And uh, educators, okay. So the talk uh, that I'm gonna give, and you know, we only have 15, 20 minutes and then we'll open it up to Q&A, is walking the talk, aligning parenting actions and values for youth well-being. And I could really say the same about aligning educators' values for youth well-being, too. Um, I'm going to take you back a little bit and tell you that after seven years of teaching, I decided to get a closer look at life on the other side of the desk. So I designed uh, an ethnographic study where I shadowed five high school students for the calendar year. So I went everywhere with them. I met them at, uh, in the morning, went to all their classes with them. I did a different kid on different days, ate lunch with them, interviewed them during free periods, really got to know them. And these were considered high-achieving students at a high-achieving large public high school. And I'm just going to give you a little snapshot of two of the students that's going to lead into the, the better part of the talk. Uh, Kevin was a sophomore at this school, and he carried a calculator with him. And he calculated and recalculated his GPA, his grade point average. So whenever he got a test back or a quiz back, boop, 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 so he could tell you exactly what he was getting. And his dad went to Berkeley, sorry, um, and Berkeley School of Engineering, and he wanted Kevin to go to Berkeley School of Engineering no matter what even if Kevin wasn't interested in engineering, even if it wasn't his favorite topic. So there was a lot of pressure on Kevin from dad. Now, as I'm shadowing Kevin, he looked at me one day and he said, you're not gonna like what you're about to see. And I watched him cheat on a chemistry exam. 
So he had a little deal worked out with his partner, and they were kind of helping each other. And it was clearly cheating. It was clear that they were supposed to be doing their own work. And as I started to shadow Kevin, I noticed that cheating was a regular occurrence. I noticed that he was feeling the stress from dad. I noticed that he was calculating and recalculating his GPA with a frown, not getting that GPA that he would need to get into Berkeley. And at one point in the course of the year, he basically said, I'm having a nervous breakdown. And he kicked a hole in the gymnasium wall. Another student, Teresa, completely different kind of student, under different kind of pressure. Nobody in her family had gone to college. She lived in a very crowded apartment. She shared a room with a newborn baby, so couldn't really get to sleep well. Didn't have access to a computer at the time. It was hard for her to use the computers at the school because that was really far from her apartment. And on top of all the schoolwork she had, she had to work uh, about 30 hours a week at a gas station just to help put food on the table. So her stress was, instead of studying for her math test at night, she was haggling with the landlord because she was the only one in her family who spoke English well enough to do that kind of haggling. And she said, I was out so late working, and I know I wanted to study for math, but then the landlord came over and there was nothing I could do. Um, she often had to miss class to take relatives to the doctors. Um, her teachers wanted to know why I was shadowing her because supposedly I was shadowing the high-achieving kids. And I explained to some of these teachers who didn't know that she had won the outstanding student in the business um, section of the school the year before. And, and her current teachers had no idea. That wasn't the Teresa that they saw before them. So both of these kids were, in their own words, doing school, which is the title of the book that this study ended up becoming. They were cutting corners, cheating, doing whatever it took to get through the crazy busy day that they had and all the homework associated with it and dealing with life stress and, and sort of developmental issues of just puberty and teenage stress along the way. And Kevin basically gave me a quote that said, people don't go to school to learn. They go to get good grades, which brings them to college, which brings them the high paying job, which brings them to happiness, or so they think. And over and over again, I started to hear this refrain of it's not about learning, it's about surviving. And a lot of the problem when you talk to the kids comes from the parents and the teachers. When you talk to the parents, it's, they point the fingers at the educators. It's too much homework, it's too much pressure. You talk to the teachers, they point the, parent, the, the finger at the parents, right? Those crazy parents are putting all this pressure on these kids. I wanted to know, was this just five kids in Silicon Valley? So, as you can imagine, it isn't. We designed a survey of 23 different high-achieving schools, 10,000 students, public and private, middle and high school. Now, I'm talking about high achievers, but what I'm going to say relates to the low achievers as well. And, I, and you're going to hear a theme, I think, from, from, from some of us tonight about that sort of mix of kids. The average amount of homework that our high schoolers were doing in this study was over three hours each night. And more than 30% were doing over 3.5 hours each night, which tend to be the kids who we correlated with the poor mental health and physical health. So that was sort of the breaking point at three and a half hours or more. Um, we asked them, how many extracurriculars do you do? Um, count the ones you do at school, count the ones you don't do at school, only count Monday through Friday, time on task. Don't count the, you know, driving in the minivan, munching on the goldfish with your mom saying, hurry up, we're going to be late. Just count the time when you're there. In, in high school, our average is about 10 hours per week, so a little bit of over two hours um, per day, but our range was zero. We had plenty of kids not doing extracurriculars, and the top end of our range was 40. 
We had kids doing 40 hours of extracurriculars a week. If, you're, if you think about it, if you're in a club sport, if you're our captain of the debate team, if you take piano lessons, I mean, it starts to add up. So they're doing three hours or more of homework. They're doing a whole lot of extracurricular activities. So it's not surprising to you that our sleep numbers were appalling. Uh, how much sleep does an average teenager need? Does anyone know? Nine hours and 15 minutes, if you believe Bill DeMent over at the Stanford Sleep Center and also the National Sleep Foundation. Nine hours and 15 minutes. I have, it, I have two teenagers at home. They don't get nine hours and 15 minutes. But in our study, the average was not even seven hours a night. And 30% of the students in our study at the high school level were sleeping less than six hours a night. On less than six, six hours a night on a regular basis, you shouldn't be behind the wheel of a car. It's as if you just took two shots of bourbon. Imagine the educators looking at these exhausting kids in their first period and second period class. And the kids would basically call themselves robo-students because they're going through the motions. They're going like robots. They're filling in bubbles. They're spitting back. They're regurgitating answers onto tests. But they're never having the time to stop and think. And as Kevin said, people don't go to school to learn. There's basically just not enough time and too much pressure to get the grades. The other thing that happens when you're tired, when you're overworked, when you've got all this homework and all this pressure, is you end up cheating, like we saw with Kevin. When I ended up surveying the 10,000 students, 95% of them admitted to cheating at least one time during the past year. 95%, we were shocked. Now, to be fair and explain a little bit, one of the cheating measures that we had is, have you worked with an individual on work that should have been done alone. So a tutor, a peer, and that's where the kicker, you know, most of them said absolutely. We've had people say, my parents do my homework for me. They take, you know, my mom takes half and I do half, right? Or I have a tutor in every subject. A very different kind of kid from who you will see maybe in, in a lower SES school who doesn't even attempt to do the homework because there's no time, they don't understand it, and it's not, um, uh, they, they've got other issues that they're trying to fight for their lives, right, to deal with. Um, so they're hurting their bodies, they're compromising their values and their spirit, and they're not, not to mention, they're not retaining the information in a meaningful way. And Mike and I, I asked Mike this question a couple years back. Um, the remediation that has to be done when these kids get to college. Now remember, these are the high achieving kids. These are the kids with the good grades. These are the kids with the uh, food on the table and a, a home to come, you know, and, and parents who, who really care about them. About, uh, about a third, 25%, I can't remember now, Mike, what was for the UC of Cal University of California students needed to remediate in, uh, in math, and we know from the state colleges it's almost 50% in math and English. And you need pretty high grades to get in. So what's going on? What should we do about it? We design Challenge Success as a way to um, basically translate the research we know about best practices with school, curriculum, and parenting to teachers, administrators, parents, and youth. We call it challenge success because we're challenging this definition of success that starts with grades and GPA and test scores and saying it's got to be more than that. It's got to be about more than that. They've got to buy in to more than that. So we're actually challenging the system. What do we mean by success? First and foremost, health. health. 
health and well-being, character, resilience, engagement with learning, being truly prepared for the 21st century. What the professors at Stanford are saying to me is, you know, 15 years ago, we used to have kids really excited. Eric Roberts at Computer Science said, they would say, this is what I'm designing the program on, and, I, and, and can I get your help? I'm, I'm really excited about it. Now what they say to him is, um, what can I design my program on that will guarantee an A grade? So even at Stanford, we have the robo students and the doing school and this lack of sort of this ability to think outside the box and be creative and be innovative. Um, so we're challenging the system and how do we do that? One thing is we work with the schools. They send teams, administrators, teachers, parents, students to our conferences and we translate what we know here at the School of Ed about what makes for engaging teaching and learning and what makes for healthier school schedules. We look at how students are spending time during the day. Are they running around like they're chickens with the heads cut off every seven periods for 42 minutes or are there a modified block or block schedule where they can have a longer time period to learn, maybe some free periods to get some homework done. The problem with that is you can't just change the schedule without working on professional development for the teachers because you don't want them just to string together their 42 minute lesson plans, right? You actually have to teach the teachers and work with the teachers how to teach for innovation, how to teach for thinking outside the box, how to teach for deep understanding. Um, we talk about making relevant, rigorous projects with student voice and choice. And we have workshops that help them do that. We, are, uh, we talk about other parts of the schedule, finals before break so you have a real break, late starts, saner homework policies and grading policies. We also challenge the parents. We know all parents want the best for their kids, but if you think about what's going on in Kevin's life, I don't think his dad realized the amount of pressure that was on him that was leading him and, and, and to the stress level that he was feeling. Um, so we work with parents and teach them. We have kids talk to their parents, and we have a little mnemonic aid called PDF, which is not portable document format, but that's what it's supposed to help you remember. It's playtime, downtime, family time. Every kid needs PDF every day. Little kids need free, unstructured play. They need to be less scheduled in their extracurriculars. They need time. We call that genius time, right? The kids are playing outside, solving problems, having the ability to um, design and innovate on their own as opposed to a teacher or coach telling them how to do it. Older kids need that playtime too, and that might look like time on Facebook or cell phones or whatever, but that's their way of being social. So playtime is important, downtime. Time to relax, time to chill. You've got the teenagers with the earbuds in their ear. At my house, I know how much homework she's got. And she's lying on her bed with her earbuds in. And I want to say, oh my gosh, go do your homework. I can't believe you're lying on your bed. But you know what she needs most out of anything? Time to chill. Time to sit and figure out who she is and reflect on her values and reflect on what went on. Because when you're in seventh grade and you're a girl, it's really hard to keep it together throughout that, that day, and all the social issues going on. And if you can just work that out, who cares about the math and the English, right? If you can just work that out. So the P is for play, the D is for downtime, and the F is for family time. And again, all of this comes from the research. So if you look at one of the um, number one protective factors for kids, they've done lots and lots of studies on this. It's the kids who have dedicated family time 25 minutes, five days a week is what the study shows, but you don't have to do it exactly that. Time where you are sitting as a family, as a safe home base and checking in with everyone. Often that occurs during a meal, 
but we advocate any kind of time where you can get family time, where people know they're not falling through the cracks, where we love you unconditionally, even if you're not going to get into Stanford or Berkeley, right? Where we can talk as a family about problems and values. And we also challenge the students because this is hard. A lot of times with older students, the train has left the station and you feel you don't have that kind of control as a parent or a grandparent. But you challenge them and say, you've got one body, one body that you've got to use for the rest of your life. Let me tell you what some of these things are doing, what, about the sleep deprivation, about the high caffeinated um, drinks that they're taking to stay up and study. And we work with them um, and teach them positive coping strategies as opposed to the negative coping strategies that we're seeing where they're getting drunk or they're hurting themselves, they're cutting themselves, um, or, or they're uh, falling into deep bouts of depression and anxiety. Um, so what we're doing is challenging kids to take risks. We're challenging teachers to um, allow safe places to make mistakes. We have, um, the Dean of Students and I have, have coined a, a phrase here at Stanford that students are failure deprived because they haven't had the chance to really think outside the box, take a risk, make a mistake, fall down flat, and realize that they can get back up. So when they come to Stanford and they get their first grade of a D, they end up in the Vaden Health Center because they don't know how to cope. So we're encouraging teachers at all levels to find safe ways to make mistakes and to build in this notion of, of um, creativity and innovation and engaged learning. So I'm gonna um, to wrap up. I wanna tell you a quick story about Steve Jobs just because it's very timely. My house happens to be on the same street as Steve's original house and his original garage. He's two doors down from us, or he was. His stepmother lives there now. And Across the street is an original homeowner who knew Steve when he was growing up. And he said that Steve used to call the neighbors into the garage and show him the thing that, you know, what he was working on, whatever he was working on. And he'd be really proud and he'd punch some buttons and then the thing would just blow up or explode. And, you know, the neighbors would kind of chuckle and say, Steve, you know, maybe a little bit too much marijuana or something going on there. And, and this is a true story. And he said he needed to have that ability to try and invent and make a huge mistake and be motivated to try it again. And he said, and imagine if his parents signed him up for club soccer and piano lessons and Kumon or Sylvan Learning Center or you know, fill in the blank. Imagine what would happen if Steve didn't have the time to explore and tinker in his garage. We would not have the innovation that we have today. So my challenge to you, and then I'll open it up to Q&A, is what will you do differently as a parent or an educator around playtime, downtime, family time, engaged, rigorous, relevant learning uh, on Monday or as a parent tonight uh, when you go home? That's my challenge to you. Thank you very much, and I think we'll take some questions. There's a, I think there's a mic at either end if people have questions. Where's, where's Sharon? I'm looking for Sharon. Or you can just yell out. Oh, go ahead, Holly, you got it. Staff, staff can ask questions.
That's a great question. And so this is the way that I, I think through it. On the parenting side, you want to um, basically uh, to tell them that they want to have the same values, that the first thing is a healthy kid, right? N nothing's going to happen. No learning's going to happen in school if your kid's not healthy. So what does health look like at the sort of more affluent end? It's making sure they're not stealing someone else's Ritalin or Adderall to stay up and study, right? And at this end, maybe it's just basic. They need breakfast. They need lunch. They need dinner. They need to be clothed. They need to feel safe, right? Um, so we're, the basic message is the same. It's the health. How it gets implemented may be different. And I would say the same in terms of engagement. We know that um, when students are engaged, when they have more voice and choice over what they're learning, when they're working together in groups, we know that that's better for all students at, at all ends of the spectrum. Um, what you need to do is figure out how to work with the teachers and the schools so that you're still at this end um, you know, finding ways to get them engaged at all in school and finding ways over here to get them out of the grade trap and the same thing, truly engaged in learning. So it's not just about the grades. Um, I'm not saying, you know, Mike Kurtz was just talking about the, you know, the economy and, and oh, we only need it to grow 2% and, and, and it would make a huge difference. I'm not saying that there's the same exact needs at both ends of the spectrum. We need schools that have books. We need schools with roofs. We need kids to feel safe and not worry about gang violence and bullying. But you need kids over at this end to feel safe as well, right? A lot of them are, are experiencing the cyberbullying that's going on now with all of the gadgets. So basic health, basic safety, a climate of care, we would want that for all our schools. We would want all parents to be involved in their kids' lives. At this end, we say, maybe you're too involved. Stop doing your kids' homework. Stop putting the pressure on for the grades. Have conversations at home that reflect the learning. Instead of walking in, the first thing you say is, how'd you do on that history test today? Ask about what they're learning and what they're excited about. I would give the same exact advice to the parents over here. Be engaged. Have conversations with your kids about what's exciting, um, what they're learning about. So it's, it's a similar message. It may play out differently. When we look at stress levels across the board, the kids over here who are, are, are very stressed. We have about probably 70% of our sample is often or always stressed by school. We're finding at this level, at these kinds of schools, similar things. They're stressed over passing the high school exit exam. This kid's passed over because the stress because she's taking five AP classes. Neither one is healthy. Neither one's learning in the way we want. It's a great question, Holly. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Just just talk loudly, and I'll I'll repeat. Great questions. Okay, so the first question on sleep is if you have a late start, so what the sleep experts will say is you want a consistent sleep time, right? Um, if you have a, a very large variation in sleep time, um, so kids, uh, teenagers tend to sleep till noon on the weekend, it's almost a form of jet lag, 
right? That they then have to get over that. So um, in the ideal world, you want a high school to start at a consistent time and you want that to be a later time because kids tend to be nocturnal um, and their bodies are not set to wake up and start learning at 7.15 in the morning. So we have had some really nice success in the Sequoia Unified School District. Menlo Atherton now push their schedule and they start at, um, I think it's 8.45 or 8.50 every day consistently. And the kids are saying it has absolutely changed them. So even if they end up staying up later, it fits more with their biological clock. But what a lot of them are saying is they will go to bed earlier uh, or they will go to bed at the same time that they've always gone to bed and they get that extra, more consistent hour of sleep. There are many schools that we've worked with that are able to find one or two days a week for a late start. Um, and I can tell you, because my daughter goes to one of those schools, even if she, she won't say to me, well, it's a late start, so I'll stay up an extra hour. But what she will do is she'll use that time in a way, and now I still have to get her to school at the same time, right? Because I still have to go to work. So she doesn't get the extra sleep, but she gets that extra time to do homework in a relaxed way, hang out with friends. So even if they're not getting the extra sleep, they're using that time in a way that, that we found to be really healthy. The national studies around Late Start have shown that the kids' GPA goes up and um, the health goes up, the, uh, the frequency of how often they're getting sick. When you're sleep deprived, you get sick more and it, and it takes you longer to fight off the infection. So there's some really nice studies being done and it's relatively new, um, but achievement is going up. Uh, concentration levels, memory, they do some short-term and long-term memory tests, and um, uh, health has gone up with those studies. Second question you asked was, um, are the schools, uh, remind me now, you just, uh, just, I remember to... Have any schools experimented with... Oh, shorter days... Right, so there's actually, it's very interesting, there, the, the, in the sort of KIPP model, it's a longer school day, right? So what a lot of schools are experimenting with is a, is a little bit of a longer school day, but what you're doing is you're allowing kids to be there and work on homework, you're allowing kids to make sure they're having breakfast and lunch. There's a lot of benefits to a longer school day. Um, what we're finding with the shorter school day, and there's a couple private schools that are playing around with this, is what they're saying is shorter mandatory class time, but we're going to open up what they call collaboration period, where the teachers will be on campus and the kids are allowed to come and get to know the teacher better, take a makeup test, work with the teacher. So there's some private schools that are experimenting with collaboration time. In terms of uh, uh, how many days the school is, the year-round schools versus, you know, in the time on task studies, what we're finding or what I find is if the kids aren't engaged, if the pedagogy isn't changed, if the way they're assessing students isn't changed, you could have them there forever. It's not going to do any good, right? So what goes on in the classroom and the level of engagement of the kids is the key factor, not so much the number of days or the number of hours that they're physically there. Um, although I will put in a plug for the, the longer day when it's built in with time to do homework, time to get tutoring, time to actually eat, uh, run around, have more recesses instead of less, those we've, we've seen some very nice results. Yes? In the work you did shadowing the five kids and in the surveys of the 10,000, did you see that there were particular activities uh, that, that on, on any consistent level at all kids were doing that were really quite positive in terms of their engagement in school or perhaps just in, in some path towards becoming uh, contributing honorable citizens? Yeah, it's a good question. So, the, so there's uh, one thing we found, and, and 
the research before us found this too, so it wasn't such a huge aha, but we were excited in our sample, is that if the more kids who felt that they had adults at the school who cared about them, perception of teacher care, the higher the level of engagement was, the higher the level of achievement, the better health, and the fewer um, incidences of cheating. So if there's sort of the closest thing to a magic bullet in that sense, at least from our study, and this bears out in other studies, is nothing's gonna happen unless you feel like you belong and are cared about. So when we, the first thing we do when we go into a school and we show them the results of the survey is we say, you know, 50% of the kids said there is an adult here who they feel comfortable that they can go to if they had a problem. That means 50% of the kids think there isn't anyone in the school that they can go to if they have a problem. Let's talk about, obviously, if you're an educator in a school, you care about kids. Why else would you be doing this job? It's the perception of teacher care that makes the difference. It's the student's perception of teacher care. Um, the other thing that we found, obviously, that makes a difference is, is we, one of the things we talk about is sort of my classes are, um, are most interesting to me when, or I feel that I'm learning when, so there's a bunch of qualitative questions on this survey too, and the kids know the research. The kids will tell you. They don't know the research, they just will say. If it's engaging, if it's not just a lecture, if it's not just worksheets, if we're out of our seats doing something, collaborative learning, discussion, debate, simulation, um, using technology, which I know Bridget's gonna talk about, there, there's uh, it's sort of a no-brainer that the straight lecture or just worksheet after worksheet is not gonna lead to the kind of engaged, excited, motivated learner who retains information. Um, we know that it's very hard to make that happen um, in a world where you are told you must fill in these bubbles and the numbers you get on these tests will, you know, are high stakes and reflect how much money you get as a school district, et cetera. So um, Larry Cuban has a great line that basically is, you know, if you can take the risk of deeply engaging the students of teaching in the way we know leads to better understanding. It's a risk for a school, but the test scores usually go up depending on the test. If it's a shoddy test that doesn't measure that kind of stuff, the test scores aren't gonna go up, and do we want them to anyway, right? Which is why I'm excited about, and I think Mike's gonna talk about this, sort of some of the things that we're seeing in terms of curriculum standards and changes that we're seeing um, now. Any other questions? All right, I'll, I'll pass the baton to Eric. Thank you very much. I'm gonna move us to kind of a different uh, set of people in a different set of institutions. Um, and I've called the talk, Everyone Needs a Nudge, and, and you'll see why I, call, I use that word nudge here in a second. And I wanna talk a little bit about uh, college students. And the college students I'm not thinking about, they're not the Stanford students, they're, they're students, in fact, I'll show you here in a few uh, slides, the group that I'm looking at after one year uh, we're likely to lose 60% of them from higher education. Um, within two years, we, we might have lost 75% of them. And, and I want to think about this because in, in many respects, the Stanford student is, is the exception. It's not what most of students in the United States experience is in higher education. And just to kind of illustrate the problem that I want to talk about is, if you look at this slide here, the very top two lines basically reflect birth cohort by birth cohort who's going to college, and you see it's just kind of an upward sloping line there. Now, it only goes through 1980. We could extend this out further and we'd still see the same slopes. 
over time, more and more people are going to college. They have some college experience. But the bottom line is the telling line. That's what college completion looks like. And as you look at college completion, it's flat. Uh, a different graphic I could have showed you uh, would have looked at kind of five-year rates across graduation rates across all kinds of campuses, the, the average campuses in the US, and they're declining. Um, it's always nice when you're doing research on college completion and the president decides to make it uh, a focus of, his, uh, of uh, the last State of the Union address. He basically said, we're in a position where we no longer have the highest proportion of students graduating uh, from college with four-year degrees. We want to restore that. And then it's also nice, uh, I, was, I gave a talk on this, uh, uh, and the, the day before the talk, um, Joe Biden basically said the similar thing, saying that we need to have as much attention about getting students through college as we do in getting them to college. Well, the question is then, why is it happening? And uh, today, for example, I actually uh, led a little discussion group with a number of undergraduates, and there's a number of reasons why this happens. Um, some of them are fairly obvious. The issues of affordability, this is something that constantly comes up. Um, whether students are really prepared to, to be successful. Uh, we've already talked about that a little bit, some of the remediation rates. Um, the lack of instructional practices. Uh, when you go to many of these campuses and you see the kinds of courses that students are taking, the kinds of supports that are there. Um, advising. Uh, one of the studies I've, I've worked on in the past has looked at students who have basically had only access to adjunct professors who had no relationship, permanent relationship, with the institutions at which they were attending. And these students, they struggled to find somebody who could help them navigate uh, higher education. And of course, personal issues. There are many, many students who are in situations where uh, their home responsibilities, uh, perhaps it's um, financial, perhaps it's uh, their family themselves depend on them. And all these things can pull them away. And we could have listed many other topics. But as you think about the various reasons we might have students uh, persisting or not persisting in college, the question is, how do we find something that addresses that and fixes that for each of the students? And there's been a lot of programs in higher education where we've used to try it. Um, we've tried study skills courses where we have students come in and we give them a course. We've tried mentoring. We've tried uh, these learning communities where we group students together and we try to create a community once they've got there. Um, all of these different programs, they all kind of aim at a different margin. And the one that I'm going to talk about, we're going to just call coaching. Um, it's very similar to mentorship, but it's a slightly different. I'll explain exactly what we mean. So this study, and it's a study we just did this last year, and, I'll, and, I'll, and um, especially where uh, the dean uh, introduced that I'm going to talk about some others. I'll show you a few other things as we go through. But in this coaching one, the basic idea is that one size doesn't fit all. And so the idea is to have a coach who can basically call a, a student and try to help that student figure out what that student's particular barriers might be and help that student figure out how they're going to get over that particular barrier. So, you know, different things that they might do. I, um, one of the things that I was allowed to do is actually to listen in on some of these coaching phone calls that happen. And some of it is about study skills. Can you actually help the students to develop the skills they're going to need to be successful? Um, some of it is students just procrastinate. Um, today, when I was talking to Stanford students, I asked the question, how many of you have, have never been up at 2 a.m. writing an essay that's due sometime in the morning? And of course, there was uh, two, one of them who was an athlete and his coach actually had a rule that he had to be in bed. Um, the other actually was a Stanford, uh, a Susie faculty member who was there who's uh, decided that she's going to get close to that nine hours of rest. I don't know that she's managed that with little kids, but she uh, has, she certainly when she was a college student was committed to that. 
But oftentimes what we find when we talk to students is they just procrastinate tasks. And if uh, that's one of the things that coaching might be able to do. And then finally, just helping students navigate the system. How do you, where do you go for this? When do you take general education requirements? How do you think about when to declare a major or what the major should be? Well, the, the company that we focused on was a company uh, here in San Francisco called Inside Track, and they're basically a, um, a, a group who's offering uh, counseling services, and they've coached about half a million students uh, over the last decade. And uh, what's interesting to me about this institution was they had this kind of coaching model where they were going in and saying, you know, it might be too costly for you to do this. Can we step in and try to help out with this in one way or another? Now. What was unique about uh, Inside Track, and one of the things I really enjoyed about them was they wanted to actually prove that they worked to the institutions that they worked with. And so they actually used randomization to determine which students they worked with. The school would submit a list and they'd try to do as many as they could. And inevitably there were some that they weren't able to do because of budget constraints, and so they randomized which uh, students they helped. Now their coaches are, are fantastic and interesting people. Um, and you know, I think I can say that after I wrote the paper rather than before, as I got to know them better, because uh, I, I, I want to make it clear I, you know, I'm not affiliated with them, I, I'm not part of their company whatsoever. This was very much an outside research project. But it was interesting to see the way that they worked and some of the things that they've done to innovate. Uh, these coaches are very aggressive. They make phone calls, they text students, they're emailing students, they're keeping track of the student's progress. Oftentimes they were, had their system completely integrated where they could see the student's schedules, even their syllabi, so they could really focus on the issues. You know, you've got a reading this week, when are you gonna do it, how are you gonna do it? Really helping them to prioritize. Um, one of the keys here, and I'll come back to this, is that the coaching is active and not passive. The way that we traditionally do student services in, in education, higher education, is we build something and, and it sits there across campus. And if students need help or want that help, they go find it. And one of the difference was this help came chasing after them, whether they liked it or not. So just to give you some numbers or you know some nice little charts here, um, this is during the first year that uh, this coaching only happened for one year. And so during that first year, the orange bars here represent uh, the students who were coached and the blue bars the students who were uncoached. You can see at each juncture, the students who were coached were better off. They were more likely to stay in college after a certain period. To me, what's even more interesting is what happened after the coaching ended. That's, that effect that those coaches had continued on. Those students, because they'd had some experience where somebody coached them and helped them kind of understand how to navigate the university, it translated into higher persistence rates over time. Now again, this isn't, if you look at these, uh, the left-hand side here, you see these very low percentages of students who even after two years are still on higher education. But this was a pretty dramatic effect. Um, you know, in terms of the overall results, um, in three of the cohorts, we were actually to track them all the way to graduation. And we saw something like a 12% increase in graduation because of the students' experience in coaching. Now, to kind of step back from this for just uh, a second and compare this to other programs, you know, the kind of uh, policy du jour there, the policy that we talk about the most is financial aid, and it's uh, probably our most advertised one. And our best studies suggest that if I give a student $1,000 in aid, it increases the likelihood that they stay in college by about three percentage points. And what's interesting here for a similar investment in actually getting them a coach or somebody who's going to really pay attention to where their own progress, the effect was bigger during that year, and that per effect persisted even after we took away the money and the coaching experience. Now, for the, for, the, for the last few minutes, I want to just talk more about this behavioral component. Um, 
you know, I, I, I love that movie, uh, Field of Dreams. If you build it, they'll come. I'm a big baseball fan. Um, I'm a Red Sox fan, which has been really torturous the last bit here. Um, but pro one of the problems we have is we build all these services and nobody comes to them and we don't understand why. And it's almost like we should change it somehow. You know, if we build it and, and push people or nudge people to participate, maybe they'll come. And uh, to give you an idea by what I mean by nudge, there's a, an influential book by Dick Thaler and Sass Sunstein that basically looks at how little pushes can um, actually lead to very large changes in terms of what's happening. And as an example, um, where this was kind of, uh, where this nudge philosophy came from, in some of Dick Thaler's earlier work, they looked at retirement programs. And for example, at Stanford, if I want retirement, after I'd been at Stanford for a year, I needed to go fill out some paperwork. And that's how it is at most places. And he said, well, what if you changed the default to where the default wasn't that you had to go fill out paperwork? What if the default was if you didn't want the retirement benefit, then you come in and fill out the paperwork? And lo and behold, what happened was you went from enrollment rates in around 60% to enrollment rates around 90%. 30% you know, of people actually wanted it, it appeared, but were somehow procrastinating going and doing it. So the natural question is, what are the defaults in our educational settings? Do we expect students to find all the help they need when they need it? Do we want them to always have to be the one to find it? And can we change those defaults? And to give you a, a simple example, um, you know, I, I mentioned that financial aid is one of the areas we care about, and the dean mentioned this research, and so I'll just talk just briefly about it. You know, if you, if you believe survey, if you believe some of the research, financial barriers are, are, are pretty severe. Um, certainly, uh, affordability is one of the metrics we use to actually think about uh, whether a, a school has a good system or not. So how do you make it more effective? How do you get the nudges? How do you change the defaults? Well, some of it is maybe we should condition financial awards on making it through some of school, and there's a number of programs uh, that do that. Another idea is, can you actually just change the way that we give financial aid? Instead of giving a check on day one for your entire financial aid package, maybe we can do it like a paycheck as the semester goes. So if you stay enrolled in school, we keep paying, and there's some, there's some um, uh, projects on the works, in the works on that. The one that I'll just finish with is this simplification um, a process, and this is an experiment that I've been running uh, for the last few years. It's a randomized experiment uh, where we collaborated with tax organizations. And then we had about 30,000 people participate in this. And what we did was, as a person would come in, uh, they would fill out their taxes at H&R Block. And what we would do is, with this software, was we would take their data from their tax return and automatically populate the financial aid form. And then we'd, if, if they wanted us to, we'd submit it on their behalf. And not only that, but then we'd explain, based on the numbers you've given us, this is the financial aid award that you'd be eligible for if you were to go to college. And not only that, this is the cost of all the local colleges near you. Well, you know, we thought it was fairly simple. We thought it was just a very simple nudge. We had somebody sitting across the table saying, you know, you can do this. What shocked us was in this population, and these were all kids, uh, families with incomes under 45,000, there was a 25% increase in college attendance. Well, then we were a little cynical. Well, maybe they're just going to show up and not be prepared to su be successful. But we tracked them now for three years, and there's still a 25% difference in enrollment across those groups. It's a small nudge, a very small thing. It took us eight minutes in the tax office to do this. So we're in a situation where our national goal is we want to get more college degrees out there. And we're in also a fiscal situation where, at least in the short run, state and federal budgets are only going to fall. So how do you get an inexpensive solution? Um, 
Kassensi had a meeting once and you know, it was invited to participate and you know, the, the comment was, we need things to improve uh, college attendance and college completion, but they have to be free. And uh, you know, these nudges, this idea of perhaps we can change the default. And so my concluding questions are, what are the defaults in our educational offerings and can we change them? And it's a powerful idea that if we can somehow identify those nudges, where if we just change the default a little bit, we might be able to actually dramatically improve the, the opportunities and the access that students have to be successful in higher education. So I'll take a few questions here. I know we're kind of, we're at 7.05 or so, and we have two more speakers. So, we'll, so I'll take a couple of questions if people have some. I don't really have a question, but I have a testimony. I'm an academic advisor for a university that uses Inside, inside Track, and uh, we have a 70% graduation rate, and the college is an adult college, so we only have classes at night, so it's working. Uh, uh, I'll pass that on to uh, Ari Bloom and his team, so that's. So I have a question, too, uh, going back to the coaching. Um, did you develop a sense of what kinds of coaching techniques were, were used? And uh, I know that you, you tracked inside track. Uh, was there anything that they didn't do that you thought would have been a good idea to offer in the coaching realm? OK, so this is going to be a tough one to answer, because uh, one of the hard parts in dealing with a company that's a very proprietary company is they have their secret sauce that they're trying to, to, to guard. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we got a peek into the secret sauce, and so part of the, the secret sauce I can't tell you. I will tell you that um, the ability to listen to questions and to ask uh, questions, you know, this was not a coach telling a child what to do. Uh -huh. This was a coach helping a child or a student discover what they needed to do to be successful. And it was really interesting to listen to some of these phone calls and see to what extent the coach really listened to what the student was facing, what the student was saying, and then tried to help them in that regard. Um, some of these challenges range from, you know, how am I going to work daycare for my kids, to I'm not sure I really know how to learn something when I'm reading it, and to listen to the types of questions to help them discover the answers. Now, a different question, which I think I, I can answer without dipping into their secret sauce, is, you know, how would I design a, a coaching program, for example, for my kids? And I, I, I keep thinking about you know, maybe the, some of the techniques that they're using in terms of helping them with their, my kids with their homework and helping them with their tasks is worthwhile. And so you know, one of the things I've done after this project is you know, my kids, I think they're a little annoyed at it. I ask a lot of questions when they're doing their homework <laughs> and when they're describing you know, what do they have to do that night. It's, well, now why is that important? Why do you think they're having you learn that? Um, you know, last night I spent an hour and a half working on you know, the distributive property of, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, asking my daughter questions to try to help her discover why this might be important. And when she, when that light finally went on, that multiplication of very complex numbers can be really easy with the distributive part, property used properly. Mm -hmm. It was amazing because she was the one who discovered it. I didn't have to just tell her it. So I hope that that gives you a hint. I don't want to dip too much in, but it was, it was very interesting to work with them and to see that. And that's one of the projects we're pushing them to, to allow us to do and to reveal a little bit more about some of the coaching strategies that they had. So we could maybe in time scale up and have other coaching models that 
make this format more successful? That's our hope. Um, I will tell you that one of the things that's kind of we're, we're, we're doing now with them is we're trying to think about ways to target the right students. This is, you know, it, when it's compared to other offerings, it's inexpensive, but if you wanted to offer this to every student, it, it, there's no way we'd be able to do this in this fiscal environment. But for example, if we could identify students who are really on the margin of, of, of not being able to continue in higher education, and if we could somehow find those, identify those students and uh, offer a service like this, it would be much more successful. So for example, in their current projects, they're working on identifying students in academic emergency and trying to find ways to bring those students back. So I, I hope I'm not being too evasive, but part of the problem here it is, is uh, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's, it's tough when you work with a proprietary company who wants to protect that secret sauce. Thank you. Thank you. Please. Uh, hi, in, in one of your earlier slides, you listed five factors that affect uh, persistence. And I wonder what the uh, weights are that you'd put on those variables because it seems to me that the policies we pursue and the activities of the coaches uh, should focus on the ones that have the, the greatest effect. It's a good point. And, and to be honest, I don't know that anybody's actually really been able to break it down. Part of the reason it's very difficult for us to break it down. Uh, so for example, half of the students who leave, when we ask them why they left, they tell us it was because of financial aid reasons. But yet when we look at their transcripts and they failed, you know, four of their five classes, it's clear something else is going on besides, I mean, it could be that the financial aid issues have, have impacted that. But it's often a, a convenient scapegoat for other problems that have gone on. And when we look, um, I do a lot of work with the National Center of Educational Statistics, and our reliability on the kinds of survey questions when we ask students why they are, are leaving, we have no faith in those questions. They're very difficult for us to be very confident that we're getting the right answers. So the first part is it's very, I don't know of any research that has really kind of definitively broken these down in a ways which we, where we uh, don't think that somehow they're kind of twisting it a bit. The second part is what's interesting about Inside Track is their effort is not to solve one particular set of problems. Their efforts to listen have the student identify where the problem is and then to try to attack the problem. Now, perhaps we could get at the number you'd like if we actually had them record, you know, the various problems that students report and we could actually do something like that. And we haven't, that, that would be, that's an excellent suggestion. And I actually see if we can try to push the research a little bit that way. Um, but in some sense, I think the bigger point is as we think about students and the reasons that they're not successful and as we start to think about state and institutional policies, we need to stop thinking a little bit about general blankets that might be there and start thinking about individuals and how we can really touch individuals one by one or at least those who are really in the dire need of that touch at the right time. If there's some other questions, I can talk to them afterwards. Otherwise, I'll turn it over to our next speaker. So thank you. As indicated, this is my uh, second term as uh, State Board of Education Chairman and uh, as Jerry Brown's campaign advisor in education in uh, 1974 and his first appointee in 1975. We were 35 young men. Bill Honig was 35. Some remember him. Gray Davis was 35. We used to go out to bars and have fun. And uh, then I was his campaign advisor in 2010 and he was elected in 2011 and uh, I'm back again. 
So is he. Uh, we're both 72. Uh, and so things have changed and things haven't changed. So w one of the things I wanted to talk about was to sort of artificially say, what was it like when I left and served in 75 to 82? And what's it like now? Uh, and uh, briefly on some of the things that uh, I would lay out in the future. Let me start with the transition from Bridget. Uh, what, what hasn't changed at all, I'm going to start with it. Uh, when I left in 1982, we were just beginning with technology in classrooms. Brown was actually pretty active in that. And I visited schools, and most of the schools had maybe three computers in the back. Uh, they were PCs, and I got back in 211, I visited schools, and there's three computers in the back of the room. Uh, it looks amazingly the same. I mean, the typical classroom has not uh, really changed in terms of the technology evidence or really heavy teaching by it. Uh, so it uh, underlines Cuban and Tayac's view that the schools have successfully re uh, resisted radio. That was to change everything. When I started in 1965 in the government, uh, television was going to do it, and uh, the computers have not had much impact. So that's a, a preview of one of my not changes. Let me go to the changes. Uh, first of all, as you would imagine, when in the... Uh, 70s and early 80s, we were focused at the state level on state policy on uh, various inputs, regulations, and procedures. And as you know, it has uh, changed dramatically now, uh, much more to a concern with outcomes, accountability, and test scores. We have what Jim Popham termed measurement-driven instruction. And that's, I think, the biggest change is the, uh, is the switch to outcomes and accountability. And one of the things I'll mention briefly at the end is, uh, can we uh, use the Common Core curriculum uh, to do something better than we're doing now? The second thing that was uh, active in the earlier period uh, was there was a lot of concern about self-concept, social-emotional nature of children and their problems. Uh, Denise Pope opened up with that uh, this, uh, t this evening. Uh, but there, overall, this is not a theme anymore in state policy. Some of you old-timers remember John Vasconcellos, the local legislator here, known as the touchy-feely legislator. And uh, Vasconcellos had a great interest in self-concept and all that sort of thing. Uh, that is totally gone. Uh, and now it's largely uh, to test scores only, uh, or outcomes only. As George Bush said, we don't want to be... Uh, he's called, uh, you know, these concerns of self-concept not that important. So, uh, and so of many other politicians. So I think that's important, and we need to think carefully about uh, what this means. Recently, we had a dispute in the, uh, where Governor Brown vetoed a bill uh, that was going to build even more quantitative indexes. So the answer to you know, concern about how children are doing are not the kinds of things Denise talked much about at the state level, uh, but we were to set up a college readiness index 
to, in addition to test scores, we'd have test scores, a college readiness index, how many students took A to G courses uh, and took AP courses, and you'd have that index, and then you'd have a career readiness index on how many students were taking and succeeding in various kinds of career courses, and then you'd smush all these apples and oranges together, and you'd get a quality education index. Uh, and Brown said, you can't measure everything, more speedometers on a car doesn't mean it's going to run any better, and, but there's still a mania that it has to be built into these indexes and numbers, so that's uh, very much changed from uh, the earlier period. Uh, the uh, other thing I'd say is that uh, when I was uh, another thing, uh, there, we were doing a lot in special education, uh, developing the new special education master plan. That hasn't arisen as a major issue at all in, in the early going. Yet the autism rate is just, I took a chart from the autism rate, and it's gone up just like this. I mean, it just continues to skyrocket. The costs on these children are often between 20 and 40,000. Uh, we now have responsibility for paying for their education till they're 21. So some of the most expensive students we deal with are 20-year-old autistic students. That's very different than before uh, in that regard. So uh, another area now on policy, uh, the California Teachers Association was a, uh, a significant political influence, of course, in the 70s and 80s. But they have uh, emerged as a much more uh, uh, prominent force in the Democratic Party. Uh, and their power has grown a lot. So uh, that has been a, a significant change in this, in this regard. Uh, as you know, in the election, Meg Whitman spent $181 million. Jerry Brown sent 20, spent $26 million and beat her by 13%. Uh, but the, when he could not spend any money uh, during the summer uh, of the uh, campaign, the, actually the uh, California Teachers Union and other unions were financing the whole campaign uh, during basically June, July, August, and he never spent any of his own money till September. So uh, the union power has grown significantly, uh, although there are, uh, you know, I think very great constraints on what they can do. An area that has changed again uh, it was that the organized big businesses were driving a lot of concern with reform. The big companies, HP, the banks, uh, uh, and, and the older line companies like Clorox and all that sort of thing, they, they were very active. They've just left the scene entirely uh, and are not active very in education policy significantly at all. So the business community has dropped off at least what was called the business roundtable, means the big employers. And this is very worrisome and uh, I think it's something that we need to uh, take account about. The biggest, uh, perhaps, change uh, uh, that I've seen, of course, is the Latino population, uh, which was about 15% of our school population in 1975. Uh, it has grown now where the Latino population is 52% of our public school enrollment of 6.2 million. It grows a year, a percent a year, as far as the eye can see. That is our majority. That's the future of California. Uh, and uh, I think that's uh, one of the, that's the, obviously the biggest demographic change 
uh, and it's still overwhelming in terms of the a number of, uh, of, of uh, students that uh, we really need to focus on better, more on that later. Uh, finally, I'll mention something on college to tie together our college theme. Uh, when uh, I left in 1981, men were a solid majority of four-year degrees in America. Last year, our graduates were 59% female, 41% male. That's really something. And that percentage increases constantly about percent a year as well. This is really very interesting, very, very little discussion of this. Uh, the, the, I've tried to get a handle on what's causing this. Uh, there's only a few popular writers who throw out theories. Uh, it's really uh, in the minority groups, uh, the females out, uh, uh, African American and uh, Latino, the, uh, the uh, ma uh, female graduates are more than two and a half times the male graduates. Uh, making me wonder what's going to go on in the marriage markets here uh, at some point. And as you know, the, a lot of the popular TV shows this fall have been about these down and out men who are 35 and so on. So this has changed dramatically and something that has not really been uh, very well uh, outlined in our uh, overall um, uh, analysis. So let me talk about a few things that haven't changed much. I mentioned the first one, technology. I certainly expected a lot more change there. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I talked to a recent superintendent's group, and I brought this up, and they say, well, there's no solid evidence uh, on how technology will improve you know, the regular classroom instruction. I'm not talking about the kinds of things obviously Bridget just talked about, but the, uh, but the uh, you know, let's say the typical elementary classroom. They seem unconvinced about this. Uh, moreover, uh, the, uh, when we wired the schools, we put a big pipe into the central office but when you actually look at the schools, they have a very small pipe. If you would uh, try and use a lot of technology, they couldn't even handle it uh, in terms of the, uh, of the basic uh, infrastructure of the schools at this point. Uh, we have uh, about uh, five uh, people at the School of Ed for uh, about uh, 55 professors who work on helping us. Uh, there are tech department, IT department, and the schools have, uh, with these cutbacks, almost none. Uh, there's almost nobody that can maintain anything. So where we're going to go with this, obviously, I'm, uh, I thought and many people told me when we get the handheld devices, then the technology will you know, invade the classroom because we won't have to have these business machines or mini computers. Well, we have the handheld technology and you check it at the door uh, and, and then you go in the classroom. So how this will, uh, the, the strategy to change this, I don't quite see in terms of uh, one of the things I'm trying to develop are position papers on what we can do, uh, where this can come. Can we go on with the model we have of intensive uh, personnel without any substitution of technology uh, is really, I think, a question that, that, uh, that we must look at. Uh, our current regulations in California on uh, technology are really inhibited as well. So that's something that hasn't changed that I think we're going to work on. I know we are. Uh, second area is English learners. I said that our uh, pupil population is 52% Hispanic. Of that 50, uh, total amount of pupils that are there, 25% or 1.6 million pupils in California. 
Although our total population of students, 6.2 million, 1.6 million, uh, cannot function in English in the classroom. So I get back and I assume, well, there's a really, you know, been a lot of progress on how to teach English learners. Nope. Uh, same dispute I had before, teach them all in English, a uh, very hard line on it, or, you know, the bilingual groups are still uh, organized, although bilingual education in a true fashion is down to about 5% uh, of our total enrollment. When I left in uh, 1982, all, all classrooms that had 10 or more pupils who were, uh, could not function in English, where English learners had to have a bilingual program uh, under state law. So we had a, something that repealed that, uh, a proposition, as you, uh, those of you know from California. Uh, but we are, and still to me in a debate about, old debate about English learners, uh, and to me it is really uh, a need for new policy there, and that's something uh, that we're looking forward to working on as well. Uh, special education uh, it was 10% of our operating expenditures uh, in 1982 when I left. It is now 23% of current operating expenditures in California. Just got the number today. Uh, it, you know, there's, I cannot find many, if any, academics who can advise a state board on better policy for special education. There's many fine special educators out there. There's not a lot of people that can tell me uh, who are in a, a, a academics about how to uh, 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 work better policy here. And so we're trying and we're beginning to work on this. Uh, but it's uh, not an area, this school has never had a special education program. Uh, the cost projections on this, uh, they just continue to go out uh, and increase. Uh, and it's a services, civil rights driven model where we offer you services. We don't measure the outcomes very seriously. And so that is an area that uh, uh, has changed in terms of the percentage, but has not changed mu uh, much in terms of the policy. Finally, our assessment system, our tests are very similar to what I left with. Uh, we had, the, uh, those of you old timers will know a system called California Assessment Program, known as CAP. I'm back and we have the California Standards Test. It's a closed-in, moldable choice test. 90, there's no, 94 percent is moldable choice. It's made up by ETS. They've got their distractors in there and, you know, so on to spread the distribution. Uh, when too many kids know items, they throw them out because it doesn't work on, you know, whether we're proficient and advanced and so on. So we've got basically, to me, the same framework of testing uh, in, in this later period. That brings me to my final topic, uh, uh, which is the uh, Common Core Curriculum uh, and the new testing consortiums that uh, pre uh, President Obama has funded. Uh, I, as, a, as you, most of you know, I've studied politics of education for a long time, and I really was surprised that 46 states, if you count District of Columbia as a state, uh, have uh, approved as uh, their formal policy a new Common Core curriculum uh, for K through 12, uh, which is geared to college readiness. Uh, we had never really worked our curriculum at K 12 uh, towards college readiness for most for all pupils. 
Uh, we really worked it around a K-12 orbit, and then there was a higher ed orbit, and then in between you had either nothing for community college students or SAT, ACT for the four-year students. So the Common Core curriculum is really an interesting and important development. Uh, I think it's, it's a much better curriculum in English language arts and mathematics. In English language arts, for example, it puts a lot of focus on content reading. Uh, the colleges complain what students can't do very well is read uh, economics textbooks, biology textbooks, child development studies, content. And studying more Beowulf in English literature may, you know, is not going to get you these content kind of reading so, and, and, and un comprehensive understanding in, in a broader way. So it's much heavier on content reading as one example. And the mathematics is just very, is much better sequenced to me uh, and has a much better flow and, and will be more uh, interesting to students. So we've got curriculum standards and now we have to, uh, I think what will be unfolding is what we've done in the standards movement. We'll have to come up with a teachable framework of, for that students can use, a curriculum framework. We'll have to come up with new assessments. We'll have to come up with new uh, learning instructional materials. I hope some of those can be, and I'm sure they will be, will be more digital and not uh, 15, 20 pound textbooks. Uh, we'll have to come up with a vast system of professional development to help, to, and, uh, help teachers teach this. Have to revamp initial teacher training. Uh, and we'll have to sell the parents and the public on a new set of standards and curriculum. So as I look forward to this service in the state board, that'll be a major effort. Uh, we'll be implementing the Common Core. We've joined in California with 22 other states. One of the two testing consortiums that have been financed, the, pre uh, the Congress and the President gave $185 million to two testing consortiums uh, to devise new assessments that hopefully won't look like the CAP and the California standards test I have now. Uh, and we, uh, the group we joined is called Smarter Balanced. I hope they, they're supposed to deliver us a test for this new Common Core curriculum in 214, 215. Uh, it will be, uh, a core, uh, they are delivering a test which will be 100% computer adaptive, meaning all students will take this on a computer adaptive way. You know, we don't have enough computers now to, you know, do it I don't, uh, at this point, so there'll be uh, extra hardware there. And the items will be much uh, more uh, diverse and interesting and, uh, uh, for students uh, than a uh, multiple choice test. So we're uh, on our way to a new system of, of uh, curriculum and testing. The challenges will be large for this. The budget will be uh, very tight. Can we do it all? Can we do it all quick, as quickly as they think? Uh, meaning 214, 215, that's not far away. Uh, how can, uh, and I think we'll be, in, in, at some point, uh, these initial implementation of 1415 will be more, uh, you know, assessment before we even have the core curriculum in the classrooms. So I think the biggest challenge in closing is uh, uh, in, improving what is taught and how it's taught and how it's assessed. Uh, we have a general uh, blueprint for how to do this and we have uh, some considerable technical resources to help us. And I will be working along with my colleagues and many of you and many of the 
uh, people uh, in our teaching uh, force and administrative force in doing this. So in closing, a lot has stayed the same, a lot has changed, uh, and we need to look forward to what we can change in a, uh, in a more aggressive way, and uh, that's what I hope to be all about. So thank you, and I'll take some questions. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.